Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Episode 100. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. I cannot believe we are at 100 episodes. I don't know that I would have imagined we would make it this far, and I really don't think I would have imagined that at this point, 100 episodes in, I feel like we're just getting started. We're just scratching the surface of some of these stories related to uh, ag tech, ag entrepreneurship, sustainability, and food security. Thank you so much. Uh, If you have been with me all 100 episodes, I really, really want to hear from you. Uh, either hit me up on Twitter at Tim Hammerich, send me an email, tim at aggrad.com, or use this new feature we've been using lately called SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag and leave us a message and say hi. You might even hear your voice on a future episode of this podcast. Hey, this Sustainability at Scale series, I, th- I think really probably could be its own podcast just about sustainability at scales. It's just such an interesting topic, and it's got so many different facets. And we're going to learn about one today that is extremely exciting about the future of agriculture. If you were with us last week, then you heard already about Marone's Bio with Bite. Uh, Marone Bio Innovations is the sponsor of this Sustainability at Scale series. They offer modern crop pr- pest protection for the modern organic and conventional production systems. Uh, to make sure every grower using their products realize the best possible return on investment. Marone invests time and resources to thoroughly test and demonstrate the efficacy of those new state-of-the-art products with serious trial data to back it up. Uh, you can see more and connect directly with Marone by visiting their website, www.maronebio.com. It's M-A-R-R-O-N-E bio, B-I-O dot So go to maronebio.com and check that out. Really, really pleased to have them as the series sponsor for Sustainability at Scale. This show is also a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if you like ag podcasts and blogs and vlogs and a brand new magazine online and completely free, go to farmruralag.com. For this 100th episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast, I'm very pleased to share the story of one of the hottest, most innovative companies uh, growing in agriculture right now. I have on the show David Perry, who is the president, CEO, and director of Indigo Ag. Uh, Indigo is in the microbials space, so they are going out and identifying microbes that can be beneficial to growing crops. Uh, It's a really exciting technology, and the impact it could have on sustainability is significant. I I don't want to give too much away, but I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from David. Uh, David's a serial entrepreneur. He has founded and built three innovative companies in the last 20 years, leading two of those to successful IPOs and generating significant returns for his investors. Uh, David holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's in chemical engineering from the University of Tulsa. He grew up on a farm in Arkansas. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation uh, with David Perry of Indigo Ag. Indigo's mission is to harness nature to help farmers feed the world more sustainably. And the first thing you're going to hear from him is how they view that mission and how that carries out in real life. Enjoy this interview with David Perry, President, CEO, and Director of Indigo Ag. (music) 
Improving the environmental sustainability of agriculture, improving the healthfulness of agriculture, and uh, and making farmers more profitable or a more economically attractive profession. And uh, and we think that you know, microbes will aren't the entire answer to that, but will help across all three of those. Specifically, we we now know from about the last 10 years of, of research that microbes exist in all living things and that, you know, the, that every multicellular organism requires microbes to thrive and survive. And, uh, and those microbes uh, over time have, have developed the ability to help plants or, or other living things um, uh, do that, sort of fight off stresses and, and optimize their behavior. So um, that's true in plants, it's th- true in humans, it's true in, in other mammals, etc. In the case of agriculture, a, a lot of those beneficial microbes have been eliminated or reduced by modern agricultural practices, specifically the use of uh, chemical insecticides and fungicides. And, uh, and so you know, by uh, identifying microbes in the environment, adding them back to agriculture, we think we've got the ability to, to reduce fertilizer use, reduce insecticide use, and reduce fungicide use, all while increasing yields. And, uh, you know, if we can do that successfully, we obviously are addressing all three of the pillars I talked about earlier, you know, improving farm profitability, improving environmental sustainability, and improving consumer health. What does the process look like, just gen- generally speaking, of, of identifying those microbes? I mean, how do you track them down? Obviously, they, they've been around forever, um, and nobody really has harnessed their power, or, or at least to the extent Indigo is trying to do. Um, what's the process look like of identifying those and, and sort of um, isolating them? Well, well, this is the hard part, of course. So in, in concept, what we do is simple. In practice, um, the the identification and discovery of these microbes is uh, is really complex. Uh, part of the reason that it's complex is the sheer number. There, there might be a trillion microbes in the environment that could potentially help plants. So if we had to try every one of them, it would be a, a never-ending task. Um, fortunately, we're assisted by developments in technology. In this case, specifically, the, the developments around DNA sequencing. So now every every microbe we collect, we can sequence the the microbe so we understand exactly what its DNA looks like. And then we put that into uh, a computer database and use machine learning to predict what microbes may work best in which situation. So with that tool, we now collect tens of thousands of plant samples. We've done that, you know, in diverse environments all over the world. Uh, every continent except Antarctica. And then we also do it in really focused areas, you know, focusing on looking at cotton crops growing under drought stress, as an example. And uh, we collect plant samples, we isolate the microbes, we DNA sequence those microbes, uh, and then use our machine learning algorithms to predict which ones might be most beneficial. That is fascinating. So, so it sounds like the machine learning has a, a big role in maybe why this hasn't already been done in the past, and kind of allowing you to do this on a on a realistic timeline. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, it's really the combination of DNA sequencing and machine learning. When we started, even just four years ago, it cost about $1,000 to sequence a single bacteria. That number is now less than $10. And so the dramatic reduction in cost there is what allows us to turn every microbe into ones and zeros, essentially, you know, a language that a machine can understand. And then advances in machine learning help us take that data and do something useful with it. That is fascinating. And are these microbes, once you have kind of identified, are they patentable for you? We've filed over 300 patent applications at this point, um, but not around the microbes specifically. So uh, recent patent law says that if something is a natural product, meaning it exists in the natural world, it's not patentable. But So we can't patent the microbes per se, but the combination of microbes with different seed types in different combinations is patentable. Okay. And my understanding is the, the primary way, at least, that you get these microbes into a crop at scale is by treating the seed itself. Is that the only way you're doing it currently, or, or are there other ways, and how does that part work? It's the only way we're doing it currently, but it's, you know, it's probably uh, not the only way we'll do it in the future. The um, coating a seed works well for two reasons. One is when a seed germinates, it naturally takes up the things in the environment around the seed. So by coating a seed with microbes, uh, you, you're enabling that seed to then take up the microbes in the plant, and the microbes then multiply inside of the plant. So you can kind of think about it as outsourcing a lot of our production to the plants themselves. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of that is that, uh, especially when we're early and manufacturing is still more expensive, it doesn't take very many microbes to coat a seed and effectively colonize a plant. But that's, uh, but over time, you know, there'll be other ways of, uh, of applying microbes. Um, for example, foliar sprays. Uh, you know, most plant leaves have, have openings in them called stomata that allow the ac- access to microbes. And so... Um, especially as we get into insect biofungicides and bioinsecticides, uh, that sort of application will make a lot more sense. And I know, you know, one, one challenge with, with, I guess, more traditional chemical sprays is that you, you could build up resistance over time. What kind of kills these microbes in nature? And do we, do we run any risk in this case of, of them sort of whatever is out there? Um, I guess in this case, it wouldn't be building resistance, but kind of creating a, a micro ecosystem that renders the microbes ineffective. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So from a scientific perspective, the answer is yes, theoretically you could get uh, resistance from a practical perspective, using microbes to control insects and disease is much better than using chemicals. Mm -hmm. And there's really, there's three reasons for that. Um, you know, one is that resistance comes when you when you provide selection pressure. Once you start trying to kill something, then uh, you know, natural mutations in the DNA are advantaged, and and you know mutants are able to evolve resistance to uh, to whatever agent you're using to try to kill something. So we see that all the time with um, either GMO modifications or with specific insecticide or fungicide chemical applications. Many times, microbes work through a different mechanism. They work by changing the volatile organic carbons that are are put off by a plant, for example, 
and and the insects then aren't able to recognize that plant as a as a source of food. So you haven't really, you know, you we're not applying uh, selective pressure as a result of that, and um, the pests are unlikely to re- evolve resistance against against it. Hmm. A second reason is that most chemicals or traits work through a single mechanism. They they kill an insect or a disease-causing organism through a single pathway. And so it, it only takes a single mutation to, to evolve resistance to it. Where most microbes work through multiple pathways. So even if you're applying direct selective pressure, if you're, if you're killing that bug or the insect through multiple ways, it's much more difficult to evolve resistance. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, developing microbes are much faster than developing chemicals. So you know, rather than it being a 10 to 15 year process, it's a one to three year process, which means that we can constantly stay ahead of, uh, of resistance should it develop. In fact, I imagine a future that's not too far away where farmers seize disease in a field, they use a handheld DNA sequencer to identify the cause of the disease, they send us the sequence, and we send them a microbe that we already know that works against it. Wow. And I know there's the the ideas for applications for this type of technology are pretty endless, but uh, what have you all identified as sort of the low-hanging fruit? Where have you? Which problems have you decided to apply this to to start, and kind of how have you made those decisions? Another good question. So you're right. I, we believe that microbes will, we will probably be able to identify microbes that impact pretty much every stress that impacts a plant. So that could be environmental stresses like insufficient water or insufficient nutrients or too high of salinity, as well as biotic stresses like, uh, like diseases and insects. Uh, in thinking about where to start, we, we spent a lot of time on this and, and I'll I'll admit to a strong point of view. I, I think when, when you have a new technology that's trying to compete in an existing market, it's really important to find some problem that existing technologies don't solve very well. You know, if, if we were to start in fungicides, as an example, you know, fungicides have been around for about 70 years now. They're pretty effective and they're pretty inexpensive. So if you're going to try to create a biofungicide initially, you're competing on price and efficacy with things that have decades of a head start. So we concluded we would start in water stress uh, in large part because existing technologies don't really work there. You know, there's no chemical you can spray on a plant to have it do better under water stress. There were other things we laid on top of that, including, you know, early evidence that technology would work there. And that's gone well. So, you know, our first, uh, the the first product we released was uh, focused on cotton uh, for water stress, and immediately after that was uh, was wheat for water stress, and we've now rolled out corn, soy, and rice as well. Really interesting. And, and do you think, you know, with with what we're learning about this technology, is you know, is there a future where microbial based technology could could replace chem- what we currently use for chemical applications? It, yeah, I think it's a better technology. Uh, it, it won't. It's not just microbiology alone that will allow that. Uh, the combination of of microbiology with uh, with data sciences and you know a better understanding of what 
what's causing disease. All, all will contribute, but, but I think there's a future in which we use less than half of the chemical fertilizer we use today, and, uh, and we may eliminate as much as 90% of the, of the chemical insecticides and fungicides. That is astounding. I want to switch gears just a little bit and ask a little bit more kind of just about um, Indigo's strategy. I know uh, you all have, uh, at least in some cases, gone direct to the farmer rather than, you know, either partnering with the seed company to apply this treatment and they can sell the, the treated seed. Uh, talk to us about the the decision of kind of when to go to the farmer or when to go through those uh, other distribution channels and um, the pros and cons of that. For the last 20 years of my career, I've been starting and running technology-based companies. Prior to this, I was in the, the human biotechnology side, creating new therapeutics, and before that, in the software technology side. And both of those industries um, have you know, a really robust startup environment. Uh, there's lots of startup companies. There's lots of money to invest in them. There are a lot of talented entrepreneurs. And um, we got to agriculture and realized that the numbers are much smaller in agriculture across all of that. There's no obvious reason for that, at least initially, you know, that we're leveraging the same technologies. Uh, All the stuff that's important in biotech and technology is equally important in agriculture. And of course, agriculture is one of the largest markets in the world, Uh, over, over $3 trillion of agricultural products produced. So there must have been some other reason, and we concluded that that part of it was it was there's so such consolidated input providers that it's very difficult for a technology company to get started and partner with those providers. Just you know when you when you think about there's only a handful of input companies, they have so much power that if you try to go through them, um, you know history would say those those technology companies never get very big or have very much impact. So we concluded that, you know, if we had a technology that was, was independent of existing technologies, in fact, might even replace a lot of existing technologies, that partnering with the companies that produce those existing technologies was probably a bad idea. And, uh, and so going direct was a, was a better strategy. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, the mission. One of the components is, is making farming a more uh, profitable and I'm not. I don't remember if you said maybe attractive uh, career. Can, can you talk about the importance of that to to the overall mission? Well, I think it's. I think it's the only way that it works. And uh, you know, I as sometimes I think farmers rightfully uh, hear consumers, environmentalists talk about the need to be um, better in those areas, and they they hear it as an attack. I, I you know, as do I, frankly. Um, you know, most farmers are, are struggling to make a living. So being told that they should spend more money to be environmentally sustainable or, you know, produce higher quality stuff doesn't, you know, doesn't tend to resonate very well. I, I, I think that's a fair response. And, and the only way to, uh, to improve those things is make it, make it economically attractive. Connect the farmers directly with people who are willing to pay more for higher quality or more sustainably grown food. And then if you do that, you know, the consumers and environmentalists are more likely to get what they want and consumers are able to charge a, I'm sorry, farmers are able to charge a higher price and therefore you know, make a better living. 
you know, like one key to improving economic prosperity for farmers, I think, is to move farming from being a completely commoditized business to one where farmers are increasingly producing things that are value added, that people are people or or buyers are willing to pay more for. And if we do that, uh, we we serve the whole system. You know, farmers do better economically, and consumers uh, are are able to get what they want. Yeah, really fascinating example of, of of you all doing that is this partnership with Graincraft. Um, for for those that maybe aren't familiar, uh, could you just kind of give us a, a high level view of, of this partnership with Graincraft and how exactly that's going to work? Sure. So um, Graincraft is uh, the I believe the largest flour miller in Kansas and uh, and one of the largest independent flour millers throughout the United States. They have a flour mill in Wichita. And uh, we publicly announced that we're, we're going to supply them with over a million bushels of, uh, of indigo wheat uh, this fall. Specifically, uh, Graincraft's needs were, as they, as they told us, the overall quality of wheat in Kansas was falling. And they were having to import uh, wheat from outside of the state in order to get protein levels up and, and improve the milling quality. And so, um, you know, they asked us if, if we could grow specific varieties and deliver those varieties directly to their mill. Um, you know, they, they saw an opportunity to improve their quality and lower their costs. We see an opportunity to pay farmers more money to, uh, to grow that for us. And, uh, you know, and we make a fair profit as well. Uh, so, it, obviously, I would think that wheat is, is treated with, with uh, your product, the seed is, rather. Uh, and, and then do you do you buy the grain from the farmer and then sell it to Graincraft? Is that how it works? We do. Uh, we felt like it was important to sort of guarantee the farmer that they were going to get the premium. Mm-hmm. So um, so we contract with farmers to produce indigo wheat for us uh, in in the in this current season, the 2017 2018 winter wheat season. We pay uh, a 43 cent per bushel premium. Or farmers growing that for us. We provide indigo treated seed as part of that, and uh, and get paid for that seed at at harvest. And then we take that and sell it on to Graincraft and and other customers. Graincraft is not our only our only customer here. So Graincraft and other customers who are willing to pay more for either quality or sustainably grown identity preserved wheat. Okay, and then as far as uh, um. What what uh, Graincraft is buying is is they care about what the wheat looks like on the other end. So is Indigo kind of assuming the the risk of uh, the product being delivered as as advertised? I guess you could say as far as the technology working. Yeah, I, that's one of the reasons that we sort of paid the premium up front. We you know we felt like it was important to put our money where our mouth was. So we have confidence in the outcome that we're producing higher quality wheat. And we guaranteed the farmers uh, a premium up front. Very cool. No, I think it's it's a really innovative model. Uh, you you don't think about you know essentially a company that's selling inputs, also like you said, putting your money where your mouth is and and guaranteeing the outcome too. So I think that's um, just a, a really really interesting model, and I'm I'm excited to see uh, how everything goes uh, here throughout the summer and into the fall. You also have launched. I read your recent blog post about on farm storage, a program. Uh, for on-farm storage to to kind of help farmers be be more profitable, can can you uh, give us some more information on that? Well, so everything I 
talked about with regard to decommoditizing agriculture, connecting farmers directly with the buyers of their crop, and getting farmers paid a premium for producing higher quality or more sustainably grown products depends on identity preservation. You know, if the if the farmer is simply delivering their crop to a local elevator and it's getting piled in with their neighbors, uh, there's no way for them to get paid for better quality or greater sustainability. So, so identity preservation is a must here. You've, you've got to be able to deliver the crop directly to the buyer and be able to confirm that, you know, that, that crop was grown under a certain way. One of the things that really enables that is on-farm storage. So it's not impossible to do that at harvest, but, uh, but the logistics and the economics are much better if you can store it on farm first and then deliver uh, outside of the, you know, the hectic time of, of harvest. And so recognizing that, we put a program in place to, uh, to help farmers do that, either through renting their existing bin space or, or by helping them finance uh, grain bagging equipment so that they could, they could use bags if they didn't have bin space or didn't have enough. Uh, David, I watched a, a, a video about the the difference that this water utilization ha- has made for for cotton producers, and it's really impressive. I, th- I think the example that was shown was um, something like a ten percent increase on productivity per acre uh, by using the treatment. If I'm a farmer and I and I want this either for my wheat or my cotton, do I talk to my seed dealer? Do I contact Indigo and then do they work it out, or do I have to buy the seed and give it to you to treat it, or just how does that sort of change hands? Yeah, they should call us directly, and we take care of both procuring the seed and doing the treatment and provide treated seed to farmers. Um, we do that with a with a number of local seed partners and and seed treatment partners. So um, we may or may not be working with someone, uh, you know, one of their local seed companies, but in any case, we will provide them treated seed. And, and can this be used on on for for short certified organic production, or uh, what's the status of of organic certification with this type of technology? Uh, it can be. Uh, so far, we've we've been granted organic certification in corn. We expect that to to be granted shortly in wheat, and we will have that in uh, in other crops coming shortly after that. Well, this is exciting. I, I mean, th- this stuff is just so fascinating to me. I'm kind of a crops nerd fr- from way back. And so I really enjoy this. Uh, you've started companies, as you mentioned, in other industries. I'm just curious from you, from an entrepreneur's perspective, how has starting a company in agriculture been different or, or, or not different at all from, from your previous ventures? This is the most fun I've ever had. I grew up on a farm in Arkansas, and we also had a fertilizer distributorship. So we sold fertilizer to local farmers, and uh, and so I've I've always had a, an affinity to agriculture. I then went on and did you know dramatically different stuff in software technology and in human healthcare. But to be able to apply everything I learned there about about technology and building companies uh, and bring it back to you know sort of where I started from is um, yeah I can't imagine anything better. David, I really appreciate the time here today, and thank you so much. If if somebody uh, wants to learn more about Indigo, where can they go? Indigoag.com. All right. David Perry, President and CEO of Indigo Ag, thank you so much for being on the program.
huge thank you to David Perry for being on the show. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. And hey, we're we're at the hundredth episode here, so I want to try something new. And here's what we're going to try: What question did I fail to ask David that you wish I would have asked? Go to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag, hit record and record yourself asking that question. Just say, hey, my name is uh, Tim. I'm from the Future of Agriculture podcast, and I wish you would have asked David this question and then ask your question. I'm hoping that we can get that question asked and answered on a future episode of this show. Would love to get more participation in our next 100 episodes. I cannot thank you enough for your time and attention. I didn't go back through to add up how many minutes, if you've listened to all 100 episodes, um, how many minutes you've dedicated to the show, if you have. Uh, it might be depressing if I did share that with you, so I'm not going to. Uh, but uh, I am so very grateful for your time and for your attention and for your contribution to the show. I really want you to be an integral part of the next 100 episodes, whether you do go to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag shoot me a tweet, an email, connect on LinkedIn. I, I really want to hear your feedback and have you be a contributor in one way or another to this show. Thank you very much again. 100 episodes, a virtual high five to each and every one of you listening. And we will be back next week to continue this series of sustainability at scale. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh, oh, oh.